Welcome to the Coming Clean Podcast with your host, Peter O. For over 25 years, entrepreneur, speaker, and CEO Peter O. Estevez has built businesses all over the world, and today he shares his experiences, failures, and successes along the side of some of the most sought-after thought leaders to help you pave your way to success. Please welcome to the show your host, Peter O. Estevez. Hello and welcome to the new episode of Coming Clean Podcast. This is your host, Peter O. Estevez. Episode 71 of Coming Clean Podcast today with none other than legendary Zeke Thomas. Hello, Zeke. <laughs> How are you? And welcome to Coming Clean Podcast. I am wonderful and thank you for having me. And oh, the legendary title. I think that's just code for you've been doing this a while and you're old. <laughs> <laughs> you're nowhere near as old as I am. So, you know, let's not go there, please. <laughs> for the audience, for the audience, uh, Sik is a DJ. He's worked on reality shows. He has worked with Jay-Z, Ludacris, uh, Pitbull, and Zoop Dog. His biggest hero is his father, a true legend and a Hall of Famer. Isaiah Thomas. Definitely, he can get the legendary title. <laughs> <laughs> you get it by default. That's what that's what legacies are for. When you welcome good family uh, energy, you know that's what legacies are for. How are you, Sig? Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for uh, being willing to share your story with our community. No, um, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. As you know, we met in Clubhouse during a global pandemic. And it seems to be a time when connection is really what we're seeking. So when you talk about legacy, I'm most proud that I'm able to look both my parents in the eye and say, I'm a respectable son. I have definitely gone through my trials and tribulations with mental health, substance abuse. As many are aware, yes, I am a sexual assault survivor. But my main focus right now is in the physical healing and mental healing realm. And I'm really excited that I've been given the opportunity to explore that. And you're right. First and foremost, thank you for being so open about, about your private life. As a public figure and your family being a public family, for that matter, you know, often celebrities and celebrity families have, choose to maintain certain things that are private as private, right? Not realizing the impact that their stories have in the community and the public at large. Although we recently met, as you mentioned in Clubhouse, you know, I have known about you, known about your father, known about your story, because I'm passionate. Number one, I've been in recovery 22 years. And number two, you know, I, I am to a, a victim of sexual abuse. Unlike you, my sexual abuse happened from, from within my household, one of my brothers. 
but uh, I, sexual abuse is sexual abuse is sexual abuse, right? It, it doesn't matter. Right. So with that in mind, I want to thank you for your courage. And I want to thank you for your openness and your willingness to share your story. Because our stories are the story of many. And the moment that we share, we open up, not only do we heal, but we help other heals in the process. And we give them permission to begin to share their story. You know, you are the son of a legendary basketball player. Your family has been in the public eye for many years, but you were actually sexually assaulted at the age of 12 years old. Tell us a little bit about that and what impact has that had in your life? The impact that my story or my the, the impact that my family's uh, growing up upbringing has had on me, I believe is it's made me more open and more able to adapt and receptive to all different types of people. It's made me also vulnerable in that sense. I am naturally a very forgiving and loving person. I am a man of service, but also that comes with definitely protecting oneself and sometimes being a bit suspicious of people's uh, motives, whether that is people trying to get in touch with my father or even perceiving myself as having my father's wealth, um, whatever that is. I think the most difficult thing me in terms of my upbringing was realizing who my dad was. And I like to separate that as, you know, there's Isaiah Thomas, the athlete, the basketball player, the Hall of Famer. And then there's Isaiah Thomas, the businessman, which often uh, gets overlooked in terms of the things that he's done in business but this isn't an interview about him i think that the most important thing is that i've just learned so much about compassion from my dad and from my mom yes there were difficulties especially when my family moved to new york city and I kind of realized, hey, my dad's like a real celebrity. Like <laughs> It was different being in Detroit or Indiana. You know, those are both uh, big cities, but not, you know, any size of New York in terms of the media market. So becoming a bit of a celebutant in the New York City market. Um, in terms of myself getting written about in the newspaper and such, those type of things were not expected or wanted. Yes, I was a kid who made some mistakes, got arrested again, as you know, I fell into substance abuse, which was hidden mostly from the public, but definitely um, something that affected me and my family. Let me ask you to pause and hold that thought for a second right there, because there's a lot to unpack right there. How 
moving to New York and realizing the celebrity status of your father, so impactful. How did that affect you as a young boy? Number one, that's my first question. And then my second question is, did that also contribute to maybe you feeling out of place? Maybe you feeling having to keep up to your father's standards? I think it affected me as a young boy. Yes, it was a constant measuring stick of me trying to measure myself against my father, which I have realized isn't fair. It isn't fair for anybody to measure themselves really against anybody, right. but especially against somebody who reached the pinnacle of their success, who reached the pinnacle of their chosen profession. I have strived to be the best person that I can be. And I, I, I champion that more than anything. Yes, I am a world-class DJ and hang my hat on all the service work that I've done. But in terms of comparing myself to my dad, that was definitely a hurdle that I had to get over. Well, and, you, and you're also, you're more than that world-recognized DJ. You're a producer, you're a singer, you're multi-talented, and uh, you've been on, on a reality show, and you've done a lot more than that. But I think I think one of the reasons that attracted me to ask you to come on the podcast after having a brief interaction with Clubhouse is your humanity aspect, your passion for helping and serving others. And therefore, you have displayed that through becoming an advocate for what was a tragedy in your life at the age of 12, being, being abused and actually taking that platform and turning what somebody will call a mess into a message uh, and, and becoming an advocate for men and for women to speak out about sexual abuse. So tell us a little bit about that and what was it that inspired you to take your message public? What inspired me to take my message public was more so the fact that I felt that I was alone. And I've dealt with this question a lot. What does it mean to be accepted by a community? And what does it mean to be welcomed by a community? Those are two very different things. And I never felt accepted by the LGBT community as a whole in terms of the hierarchy of, um, I'll just say the pretty white boys <laughs> um, who I uh, clamored to get attention from or try to uh, get involved with. Another point is that I feel that there are a lot, we put a lot of emphasis on youth in the LGBT community and not a lot of emphasis on the wisdom of our elders. So that right there led me to decide to come out publicly with my story because I felt alone. I felt that nobody was hearing me and all the different opinions that I was getting um, in terms of, hey, 
Should you go on Good Morning America? Should you talk about this? I felt that it was my responsibility to share my story. And yes, I was the first classified black queer man to go public with a story of sexual assault on such a major platform like Good Morning America. I didn't realize the impact that it would have at all. I really just wanted to scream and shout it out. But here I am now today, walking the walk, talking the talk, able to go to therapy and able to speak and help others. And that's my purpose in life right now. Wow, powerful words, uh, Zeke. You know, I find something very interesting that you said a minute ago. I felt I was not accepted. There's a big difference between accepted and welcome. But you only refer that to the LGBT community. But you also have, in other interviews, talk about being Black and being gay. So tell us a little bit about the aspect of being Black and being gay in the Black community. Yeah, I also will put emphasis on, you know, yes, I have a certain amount of privilege or cachet from coming from a celebrity family. So being welcomed into many rooms, some that I, I still you know, don't believe I deserved to be in at the time, but yet I was able to lend my voice and people listened and respected what I had to say. Other times I was just the, the token, so to speak. So yes, I have had a hard time being accepted in a lot of rooms, being taken seriously, but yet always welcomed, always invited for the photo op, so to speak. Yes, the Black community has embraced me and then others have not. And I think that's just uh, the way of the world. But what is the most difficult and things that we are finding out as America finally makes a giant leap forward since they haven't done it since uh, the late 60s in terms of addressing systemic racism, you are now seeing black people, brown people, LGBT people, white people come together. And I'm very careful, actually, with using color-coded language because I do like to promote that, you know, I am well aware and I believe many people around the world are well aware that America is designed as a caste system with white Americans sitting on top and minorities below. You know, if you got 400 years of free labor, <laughs> you'd be sitting at the top too. So I really tell people, you know, if we really want to get over this racial gap, we need to start referring to ourselves in our nationalities. Many people who immigrated to America or migrated to America from Ireland, Italy, even Latin American countries have given up their Irish American, Italian American statuses for just being white. 
even Jewish American, just being white, because it is easier to excel in America by being white. But just as classified black people have been persecuted throughout history in this country, Italians were not welcome, Irish were not welcome, Latinos not welcome, and so forth and so on. But we need to truly take a look at why do we define skin color when we all know that we originate from a black woman? Wow, that was powerful and beautifully said. Thank you so much. You almost left me speechless there. And I want to clarify the point. I want to clarify that there's a systemic racism. I have felt it. You know, I'm of Mexican descent. I was born in Mexico City. I migrated to the United States at the age of 10 years old. My family was not a privileged family. My father was, was a blue labor worker. My mom had a sixth grade education. I come from a family of 13. So I have lived and experienced a lot of the discrimination that many, many have, have felt in a white America. I don't see the world as white or black or brown. You know, I just see the world as a world. Uh, unfortunately, not everybody has that vision, right? But for the purpose of being able to make the conversation relatable to those that do see themselves as labels, right? Because it, it, it is important that a lot of people, we still have the tendency of gravitating to, to our cultures, to our beliefs, to our roots, right? So it is important for them to understand that, that the conversation, our point of views are very important, and that's how we see the world. But we also respect the way that others see the world, right? Exactly. I definitely respect the way others see the world. But just as you pointed out, as you have a worldly view, there are many people. I've, in, in fact, I'm baffled, you know, when I, when I first moved to New York, lived in, the, lived in the city and then lived in the suburbs. I knew people um, who lived in the suburbs who are 30 minutes away from New York City, but had never been to New York City. So if you can't even go to New York City or outside of your radius in, you know, let's say, um, Owensboro, Kentucky, or even outside of Mexico City. You have to see the world and experience different cultures, different people, and different point of views to really shape your mind as a human being. I really believe that. If you're just around like-minded people, the entire time of your life. And if that like-minded person, I've heard many stories of men, women saying thank you during this time of civil unrest, saying thank you for stopping my family's history of perpetuating racism, systemic racism, and bigotry. But that's just information. That's just education. That's just reaching out to a conversation. You know, I, I, I know many racists who love hip hop. And right. that's, a, that, that, that's even an interesting dichotomy in itself. And then there are many countries around the world that ban hip hop music because hip-hop music originally was the music of the rebellion, was the, it, it still is, you know, Fight the Power, Chuck D, 
you know, Don't You Love America, Keith Sweat, Eric, or Curtis Blow. There are there there are many revolutions in hip hop music that aren't expressed in many other forms of music around the world. We're going to talk a little bit more about your experiences and the difficulties in your journey from addiction and, and recovery and, and all of that. But I want to talk about Young Seek. I want to talk about Young Seek when he went on an internship at Hot 97 in New York at the age of 16 and his passion for DJing was born there. Tell us a little bit about him. That's the guy I want to hear. That's the guy I want the audience to hear. So closing my eyes while still focusing on you <laughs> and transporting myself back into my younger self, I was just so happy to be included. I was doing the mailroom work. I was carrying records. I was, you know, getting waters on photo shoots. And it's actually interesting. I can remember the hip hop artist, Fat Joe. I was uh, assisting on his photo shoot, basically being the gopher boy. And yet, he knew who I was by um, meeting me at one point, but said that, you know, I was very professional in my role. I, I, there's never a job that at that time I wouldn't do because I wanted just the acceptance and just to learn, just the knowledge, just to sit behind these great DJs, these great audible audiators on the radio. I was just fascinated by it. The younger me, you know, I used to get up, take the train, get on the subway, show up. It really was my first taste of adult life, in a sense, of a real job, of a time where I saw possibility and a future outside of the shadow of my father. Very interesting. And I keep listening to some of your words and you have used accepted, welcome. And just in this last sentence, you used included. Okay. And even as far as back as uh, the shadow of my father, you know, unbeknownst to us, a lot of times we take on that responsibility or that shame or that guilt or that feeling of less worthiness. But it has nothing to do with your father, right? It has nothing to do with, you know, that was completely unbeknownst to your dad. Your, your dad had no idea. Your dad was doing what most parents do, right? Their job as a parent. And, and a lot of times we become so entangled on our own emotions as young adult or, or teenagers and we don't know how to communicate how we're feeling and what we're processing and how we are separating or excluding ourselves from being part of instead of being part of so you know not with the experience and the knowledge and, the, and what you have been through what would you tell that 16 year old Zeke about how he felt back then what i would tell that 16 year old zeke um, about how he felt back then was there are many people in this world who aren't trying to see you be successful. There are many people in this world that you are in of entertainment who had their chance and didn't make it 
and now are stagnant and yourself rising, I wish that I, at that time, did not get caught up alcohol and later drugs and the fast life of entertainment that I was introduced to at a young age that then would spiral into abusing those things to cope. And, you know, my, my, my mother and father barely drink. (laughs) So I am definitely the outlier where it comes to attempting uh, to use these substances, even marijuana. But I would just really want to harp to that young man that, yeah, life is difficult and finding your tribe is difficult, but you have such a great family that you can turn to. I wish that I would have taken more advantage of that um, as a younger boy. I think, you know, I think a lot of teenagers, you know, they want to spread their wings and get out and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, I had moved around a lot. Freshman and sophomore year, I lived in Indiana and junior and senior year of high school. I lived in New York, two very different places and just at that point, you just want to make friends and fit in as fast as you can. I think that I latched on to people who were unhealthy for me. Well, you know, a lot of times, and I'll tell you this from personal experience, okay? You know, I wanted to escape my reality. My reality was really impoverished. It was sexual abuse. It was physical abuse. It was poverty. It was uh, a father that was that was unstable. It was a mother that had unconvinced mental health issues. Now, don't get me wrong. I love and respect that my my parents because they did their best. That's what they knew how to do. This is not a condemn on my parents. This is just me as an adult being able to take a 30,000 foot view into what my life was back then and realizing, gosh, you know, for a long time, I wanted to escape my reality. Can you imagine the pressure on my parents wanted to escape theirs? You know, uh, having 13 children and wondering how they're going to feed them, how they're going to support it, how they're going to take care of them. So in those scapesisms, those ways of me wanted my reality to be different, which I is I keep hearing the same thing in you, would turn into alcohol, sex, power, control, you know, anything that would take me away from that environment. But the reality is that I kept coming back to me. And what needed to change was me, not my environment not wealthier parents, not more educated parents, not being richer, not being, I needed to change. I needed to accept me. I needed to love me. And when I did that, I was able to put the bottle down, focus on recovery and focus on making my mess, my message and empowering others to be able to not fall prey to their own thoughts, their own behaviors. Now, when did your career as a DJ take off and where are you at today with it? My career as a DJ took off I'd say when I was 2021, to be honest with you, you know, I started DJing clubs and then I got to DJ during NBA All-Star Weekend, a few Super Bowl events, and I became in demand in my, for my talent, which really felt so good. Now my uh, career has gotten to shift, which I like away from the clubs uh, that's 
less pandemic related and more career choice in terms of getting able to DJ for a lot more charitable events, political events, um, and just more uh, events that I get to lend my skill set to that aren't just about popping bottles in the club. <laughs> so, so has that shifted as a result of your sobriety or has that shifted as a result of your personal choices or maturity as a young adult? I think it's definitely a result of my um, personal choices and definitely let me be clear. I don't want to uh, mislead anybody in saying that, you know, I'm 100% sober, but I feel my sobriety, I have gotten away from crystal meth, cocaine, ecstasy, any other hard substances. Yeah. And let me clarify something because I don't want you to feel uncomfortable. Everybody's sobriety is different, right? Everybody's journey is different. Everybody's addictions and vices are different, right? I'm the type of guy that, you know, I never touched any drugs, but don't give me any alcohol because I'm going to drink yours first and everybody else's in the room. Okay. And once I did that, out of control, I was dancing on tables. I was hitting on your wife. I was doing everything that was despicable to me. And uh, so everybody's journey is different. And, and, and what we have discovered, even I have discovered my journey of recovery, is that there's multiple ways of what addiction is. Addiction has a different meaning for a lot of different people. Uh, and it's an individual choice. And you may be addicted. You know, I was addicted to alcohol. But, you know, I tried a few other choices of drugs and and I never care for them. They didn't, even, they didn't do anything for me. So there's no judgment here or any of that. It's not, that's not where the conversation was going. I want to clarify because I think it's important for people to realize that, that we all, our biology as human beings is completely different. And what might impact you doesn't impact somebody else. Right. And I also think that it is important to clarify, especially around this conversation of addiction and sobriety. I believe I was more addicted to acceptance. I finally found a crew who accepted me. And although that crew was doing bad things for my body, for my health, I liked them. But letting, letting go of them was the correct thing to do for my evolution. And I am... Definitely, I definitely regret that chapter of my life, but the people who truly cared about me, and I, I, I do remember one person saying to me when I was at my lowest, they said to me, hey, there's going to come a time when we won't be friends anymore. We won't hang out anymore. You have a bigger purpose and that's okay. I want you to know that. And at the time, I didn't really, you know, register what he was saying. But I think that it is so admirable for somebody who was not going to stop doing drugs, but knew that eventually I would make that decision and he wasn't going to hold me back. In fact, he was going to root me on and has in my um, staying out of the riffraff and getting out of that scene. Wow. And, and, and that's very commendable, that individual. I find in the rooms of recovery, 
And I don't know how active you are in some of the rooms, whether you are or not, that doesn't really matter. But I'm just sharing my personal experience. I find in the rooms of recovery that there's a tremendous amount of people that are very capable individuals, very intelligent, very uh, creative, very artistic, very bohemian, but that we suffer a lot of that feeling of being part of, you know, that, that inclusiveness, that, that being accepted, the being somebody else's shadow, whether those things are real or not, they exist within us. But there's also another parallel that goes along with, with addiction or those cases, as I like to call them at times, is mental health. And a lot of times it goes undiagnosed because we can't treat something that we try to hide, right? Or that we don't know it exists. So, Correct. That even, you know, my, my therapist, literally when I, when I committed to therapy and I told him that I was, you know, struggling with addiction, he said to me, he said, well... We can either treat your mental health or your addiction, but we can't treat both at the same time. So you need to make a decision. And I made the decision to get clean so that I could deal with my mental health issues. It took a lot of willpower. I didn't, you know, go to a rehab facility. I'm actually very thankful that, you know, I I actually told a friend of mine, I said, can you just give me 60 days and just be my crutch for 60 days? Keep me in line, keep me eating right. Let's go to the gym. Let's, you know, just do stuff to not enable me to hang out with person X. And that person did that. And I will forever be grateful because after those 60 days, I've been able to um, flourish and continue to grow. But yeah, you, you can't do both. You definitely have to heal the addiction, heal the mind. And then as I'm learning, as I'm dealing with a lot more holistic um, medicines, such as um, chiropractic or Reiki, I've discovered that there is so much of my trauma that is stored in my body in terms of muscle memory that is being released through these therapies um, in ways that I couldn't imagine, you know, leaving the chiropractor and having flashbacks. You know, I've been told, you know, that's normal. The body, the nervous system, it, it remembers. It remembers those feelings. And I think that and I encourage everybody to treat their health in a full spectrum way. You know, now, you know, you have to eat right. You have to exercise. You have to do those things. But truly, after you, you know, do the mental health, there is this component of physical trauma that is stored in the body, all pain. All suffering starts with inflammation. So if for whatever reason you got tense shoulders and you say, yeah, I'm so stressed. I got these tense shoulders. I need a rub. I need a whatever. There's a reason why your shoulders are tense other than maybe your posture or whatever. Your shoulders are tense probably because you are stressed or you have ignored an issue for so long that that um, shoulder shoulder inflammation 
has become chronic. Absolutely. And, you know, the reality is that we as humans, we create it. We create whatever that symptom is. The subconscious remembers it and the body stores it. Okay. And then we have to treat all of it, whatever, you know, you, you're doing it through holistic uh, medicine. You know, I've done that through prayer, meditation, journaling, exercise, developing new habits, retraining my brain and my body, my body to get rid of that store trauma and my brain to create new thoughts, new ideas. And by the way, this is not to promote Joe Dispenza, but this is an incredible book that I've been reading, Becoming Supernatural. And he talks exactly about that. He talks about getting rid of, of all those bad habits and all those bad thoughts and, and, and developing and retraining your mind, your body, your spirit to think differently, act differently, and do differently. Because we train ourselves and our bodies to be programmed a certain way. And if we don't break those patterns, that's all the body and the mind remembers. Now, now see, you um, exit a lot of the behaviors that were self-destructive. You become public about being sexually abused. And as an adult, you are abused again. Tell us about that experience and what impact has that that for you as an adult, but also your experience as a young man and going through the process of therapy and healing has helped you overcome that perhaps even faster than the first time around. When I was younger, I didn't fully process it. So then when I was older and it happened again, and it happened in a worse way, I realized and remembered what had happened even more. And I was just angry, just angry. And I lashed out. I lashed out at my family, lashed out at my friends. I felt unprotected. And that isn't where anybody should be at all. When you um, decided to come out as being homosexual, what age were you and why did you decide to come out? And how did your family take it? I was 20 years old and my family, they said they already knew. (laughs) Um, So it was more hard for me to come out to my friends. You know, in college, I actually lived with a roommate who defined himself as homophobic. Yet um, he was my friend. And that was something that was uh, hard for me to accept, difficult for me to feel safe, in a sense, Um, knowing his views and then having to live with that person. Now, I don't know if I was able to change his views, but I know that I was able to open his mind. But I always was nervous of my uh, friend um, who who said, I'm homophobic. Your lifestyle bothers me. How did you how did you feel when your parents told you we already knew? Was that a sense of relief? (laughs) My parents telling me that they already knew was definitely a relief. However, there's no manual for then, Okay, your parents accept you, but now you're out in the world 
and my parents were not gay, so they couldn't teach me healthy behaviors, where to go, where to seek out, how to date, how to meet people, even how to have sex, what lube to buy, this simple things like like that, that you really have to figure out on, on your own. And that is the sad thing that I feel, again, as gay men, we put such emphasis on youth and beauty and not enough on wisdom of older gay men who lived through an AIDS pandemic and now are comparing this pandemic that we're living in now to the AIDS pandemic in terms of um, young gay men traveling around the world chasing parties, feeling that, you know, invincible. And I just wish that I had had someone to hold my hand in a sense and always be there to check on me. You know, my parents, you know, they obviously, uh, as I said, they're not partiers, they're not drinkers. So I didn't expect them to go to clubs with me, but it was always a want to have somebody with me to be able to go to that bar or club or hang out um, with my parents in the gay scene. You know, my dad marched in the pride parade, the same parade that I actually marched in, but we didn't march together. He marched with the NBA contingency and I was um, marching um, with another contingency. And even though he marched in the parade, he didn't march with me. And that hurt, but I still knew I had his support. But there's something special that I didn't get to experience yet in terms of, hey, my family, we're all at a gay bar and we're having fun. <laughs> and, and you know, it's very interesting what you said a minute ago. Typically, in many families, and this thing, this did not happen in my family. I never had that conversation about sex with my parents. You know, I now have a 19-year-old son, and I had conversations with him about sex, about contextual STDs, about all kinds of stuff, right? Because I wanted to have an open line of communication with my son, talk to him about addiction, talk to him about drugs, I talked to him about sexuality, you name it, things that I never, ever, ever touch with, with my son. But I can see how in the uh, typical, if there is something typical out there, family, these issues I talked about, they're discussing, they're normal conversation. They're part of, a, of an integral family conversation. It's part of a, a, of, of a family nucleus. But I can see where it would be very difficult when a young man or a young daughter comes to us at the age of 21 or 22, and as a parent tells us that they're gay, I mean, how do you have that conversation? How do you talk to your children about, you said something that is very important, the behaviors, the, the sex, dating, a lot of those things that, that are not talked about. And even if you are fully loving and caring, compassionate parent, and you accept your children for whatever they chose to be or they are, okay? Uh, yeah, you don't, you don't have that. You don't have that experience. You don't you know, have that it's, experience. It's, so how do you don't we, experience. How terrible is that? So how do we, society, how can the collective be able to help 
communities to be able to navigate through those things? What are what resources are there available? Because I've never, and, and I'm being humbly honest and, and respectful. And if I say something inappropriate, please forgive me in, in advance. But how do we educate men and women to what resources are available and how to navigate that journey. Because if it's already hard enough feeling that you're not accepted by society, but not knowing what to do is even worse. Well, I think, you know, it even starts, it starts young, you know, it, it starts young, you know, you know, kids nowadays can, you know, look up anything on their phone, you know, I, you know, from porn to whatever, they're, they're, they're getting early exposed. But, you know, I can remember in sex ed class or the, the week that, you know, we talked about sex in school, many schools don't teach um, sexual education anymore in terms of the public school system, which I feel is a huge disservice. And if they are teaching it, they're not talking about homosexual sexual activities or even talking about the reality issues. A lot of some schools teach abstinence still um, and teaching abstinence to a young teenage boy is pretty, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a crap shoot, you know? So what I would encourage more resources to be available, how more resources can be available is that we as a society, as a government, even as corporations, things are improving in terms of understanding of queer people. I mean, queer people are now more than ever on television. Yes, representation can get better, in terms of not showing stereotypes. Um, for a while, you always saw black people playing the criminal. It'd be nice to not see a gay person being overtly flamboyant or et cetera. But, you know, you are starting to see some various representations. I applaud, um, there's not to give a plug, but Chicago Fire had a trans male firefighter that was black. And that was definitely a moment in my mind in terms of watching television, like, wow, like, look at that. So representation is definitely key. You want to see somebody who looks like you or acts like you that you can relate to. You want a role model. You know, many of my role models growing up, besides, you know, my father and mother, et cetera, you know, they, they didn't look like me. They didn't act like me. You know, Michael Jackson was one of my biggest role models, but I still can't moonwalk. <laughs> <laughs> it's just showing, you know, nowadays there are more people to look up to, like a Billy Porter or even a Billie Jean King for an older generation. Um, people who have, you know, trailblazed and fought and done things to be commended by, to be commended for, 
but are not as accessible. You know, now in social media, I'm very accessible. You send me a DM, I respond, or I don't. You send other people DMs, they respond, they don't. The accessibility of knowledge being able to be passed down is a lot more available. And I hope that more people with large platforms, large number platforms, you know, I know people who have millions of followers or hundreds of thousands of followers who didn't even post during, you know, the height of Black Lives Matter or even themselves being gay and posting about LGBT rights because they feel they don't want to alienate their audience of whatever e-commerce uh, money they're able to receive. But we all have a responsibility. And if you have a platform of over 500,000 people following you that you can influence and influence in a positive way that even benefits yourself, not alone the world, why aren't you doing that? What's, what's holding you back? Is that, you know, a thousand dollar influencer check that you get from some brand really worth that much from you not posting about, you know, Black Lives Matter, Black Trans Lives Matter? Or how many times have we seen because Latino males are now being shot at a rate that is similar to the rate of black males being shot by the police. But that's not talked about. Black trans women, again, not talked about. These things are right in front of our eyes, but yet the people who are in power or the people who have influence have decided to ignore them. Very interesting that, um, as you mentioned, social media has given us a lot of visibility has given us a lot of transparency. And as we see in this recent election, has also, you know, uh, numbers and numbers of people came out of influencers and, and celebrities came out in support of our president-elect. Joe Biden and Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, you know, they, they show overwhelming support, yet, yet there's also the feeling out there that some issues, as you mentioned, are not being talked about, are, are being blindsided, are being omitted, are not being you know, a, a, an influencer with a couple of million people is a small community, it's a city, it's a town. I mean, it, it's, that's very, very powerful. And thereby goes my next question. Do you believe that social media or the social media platforms are infringing on our rights uh, by censoring uh, the content that we post and even by choosing to ban President Trump from Twitter? What's your stance on that? And this is not a political conversation. This is this. I is know this is not definitely not a political conversation, but I do. I believe that um, three of the most things that uh, are quoted that many people haven't read are the First Amendment, um, the book 1984, and the last one being um, uh, First Amendment. 1984. Oh, and the Bible. <laughs> and the Bible. I believe free speech, yes, is given to some, not many. But it is free speech against the government. And Twitter, Facebook, 
all of these uh, other uh, platforms, they're not owned, thankfully, by the government. You know, many other countries, China, for example, you know, they have state run social media platforms. But I do feel it was appropriate to block President Trump from Twitter and other platforms because he was inciting violence. I do believe that even if people say hate speech, you know, I've been called, you know, the F word, the N word, many other, you know, derogatory things, but they sting. But that person is allowed to say them. And I um, have to swallow it and move on. However, when you have so much influence, such as the president of the United States or a major um, news corporation, and you are putting out propaganda, things that are knowingly false, I definitely believe it is the right and the responsibility of that platform to shut it down. I mean, you see even, you know, food, there was a whole food revolution on, you know, back in the early 2000s, 2010s, you know, even McDonald's started putting finally real chicken in their chicken nuggets. We had had it with alcohol. We had had it with with everything. It's, it's, it's a course of, of cultures, right? You know, different yes. cultures have different agendas and, and different different values that we want to either carry forward or kill. Bottom line. Yes. Seek, where are you today? What projects are you working on? So I am in um, New York City or New York. I'm actually um, right now I'm at my parents' house, but I am in um, New York. And currently I am chief marketing officer for Isaiah International, which is um, a holding company founded by my father. I get to work on projects mainly dealing with our company, Sherlon Champagne which is the first African-American-owned champagne in the United States and fastest growing. Also deeply involved in the CBD and THC space. I really believe that hemp, just like it did 8,000 years ago, will again change the world and save us from this climate disaster that we are at an accelerated space moving towards whether hemp is replacing plastics or even just planting the plant and letting it grow. You know, hemp was banned um, in the United States for a while and stopped being grown because major wealthy people wanted tobacco and cotton to be the main crops that were exported, not hemp, which was indigenous to the United States and to many other um, places around the world. You know, actually, you know, a, a, a caveat and a uh, special fact that I love to point to is that, you know, during the Revolutionary War, the Union soldiers' uniforms were made from hemp, not cotton. So the things that I'm doing right now, I'm definitely focusing a lot more and leaning hard into social justice and wanting to get get more involved in our governmental system. Um, whether that's one day, you know, I'll run for office, who knows? I definitely want my voice to be heard 
and I want to participate in our democracy. And I want to thank you in advance for considering that because I think we need new fresh minds and new fresh ideas in our government system. I think part of the problem that we are facing today as a country and as a world is the fact that we are operating on a governmental system that has not been revamped over 200 years. And those ideas, those ideals, and even some of the constitution amendments are not in correlation with the views and modern times. And and I think it's, it's time to be able to bring fresh blood, fresh ideas into the system. You know, that's evolution, that's change, that is growth. Where can people find you in social media besides Clubhouse? <laughs> um, Zeke underscore Thomas, Z-E-K-E underscore Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S. I am a frequent user of Instagram. I'm not that much of a tweeter, although I am uh, starting to get back on and I'm, I just started to get back on Snapchat as well, but mostly Instagram and definitely I'll be popping in and out of various clubhouse rooms and I'm pretty accessible and I love to have good conversations with good people and appreciate all viewpoints. Sick Thomas, entrepreneur, DJ, advocate, and possibly a future political candidate. Sick. Possibly, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter, for having me. It was truly an honor. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of the Coming Clean Podcast. Make sure to join Peter and his next guest on a brand new episode as we continue changing and impacting lives across the world. Share this episode with a friend, follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Go ahead and get it fast. Get it dash in my position. You will never last.